Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Welcome to this week's episode. Today, we're talking about the iPhone 14 being hit by a recession. We talk about the update to the Twitter v. Elon saga. We're talking about foldable laptops. And we talk about Steam Deck impressions. All right, on to topic number one. It appears iPhone, Apple, has been hit by a recession. They have told their suppliers that they're pulling back on iPhone production. So they're telling them that they want to reduce the amount of iPhones they're producing by 6 million units in the second half of this year, which puts them at about 90 million units, which is what they did last year in 2021 at this point. Now, there's also a rumor that the average price of the iPhone may be going up. Uh, It appears that the demand is higher for pro models compared to the regular iPhone 14s. They don't seem to be selling that many iPhone 14s, possibly because it looks exactly like the 13, and it is exactly the 13. Uh, Some numbers from China. So in the first three days that the iPhone 14 was available, the demand was 11% lower than for the iPhone 13. So they're selling a considerable amount less than the iPhone 13 in China specifically. Now, globally, the demand for personal electronics, so like cell phones, tablets, laptops, uh, it's been it's been suppressed by things like inflation, you know, fears of a recession, a global recession, and other geopolitical reasons. So it's not just Apple, but we're hearing that Apple is typically, you know, a very successful company who's always pushing the amount of iPhones and stuff that they're selling. They seem to be getting hit by this, right? This global drawback in terms of personal electronics. So what are your thoughts on hearing about this? You know, on hearing that iPhone is saying, hey, or Apple is saying, we're not going to produce as many iPhones. We don't seem to be selling as many iPhones. Do you think this is... Do you think Apple has something to worry about or do you think this is okay, this is a global trend and we're just hearing about it from Apple first? Yeah, I think this could potentially be Apple running into problems that Android manufacturers have had in the past where as their consumers start to get more ingrained and more savvy um, in the items that they're purchasing, they're going to want to see bigger and more significant changes from year to year. Whereas in the past, uh, you know, Apple has done a really good job with going from a mainline model to an S model, to a model that's slightly different than that S model to another, you know, S model. Like they, they're not very quick on changing design and features, um, from year to year. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an issue that, uh, Android used to have, you know, Samsung, from the Galaxy S3 all the way up to, I believe, the Galaxy S5. Not a lot of changes there. And the two real models that really kind of focused on a lot of change for Samsung was one, the original Galaxy S2, uh, because that was a huge change uh, for them, and it was a very popular model. But then the Galaxy S6, and if anyone remembers uh, what they did differently there, that was a huge redesign for Samsung where they started going away from plastic devices into the metal and glass. And they started introducing the screens that kind of folded over the edges, the waterfall displays, and kind of started that whole trend. 
And that's what got people excited about the phones again. I think what's happening with Apple right now is even though the design changed in the iPhone 12, I think anyone who has had anything since an iPhone 10 or iPhone X uh, and forward doesn't really see a lot of changes because the main feature of the notch has been almost identical from the 10, 10R, 11, 12, 13, and 14. And really everything else in terms of processing and stuff like that hasn't really increased that much because Apple's already always ha- already had this huge lead in terms of processing on their phones. Like they're already fantastic. So it's like one of those things where there's not a lot of reason for people to upgrade. Now, the interesting thing is that, and I don't know if this is something that generally happens, I would imagine it's not, but the pro models of the iPhone 14 are outselling the base models. And I think that's important because the pro actually has a new feature, even if, you know, I personally think it's a little bit of a gimmick, uh, but the dynamic island, which I said I would never call it, but I did. <laughs> this new pill-shaped notch on this these new pro models is enough to get people excited to upgrade the phone. And I think the normal iPhone 14 models aren't enough. And I think this is going to be something that Apple needs to reevaluate how they do phones in the future because I would have imagined that they wanted to stick with this iPhone 12 design on the base models for quite a bit longer. And I think this is going to make them reevaluate, you know what, maybe we do need to do more year to year. Maybe we do need to get people more excited about the hardware of our phones uh, and not just rely on on last year's model with a slight spec bump or a new crash mode or something like that. We kind of need to do something cool. And I think that's just what's happening here. I think people don't think the iPhone 14 is all that cool. And not only that, if you wanted a base level iPhone 14, you could also get a base level iPhone 12 or an iPhone 13 and pretty much have the exact same device. So yeah, to me, there's just not a lot of reason to get that base level iPhone 14, but there is more reason to get the Pro. So yeah, I, I think it's just a situation where these phones aren't that exciting and that's kind of affecting their bottom line. But uh, how about you? Do you think this is a situation where these phones are just aren't exciting? Do you think this is probably, um, you know, people saying that they they don't want iPhones anymore. I don't know. I, I don't think this is as dire of a situation as maybe the articles might make it seem, but hmm, it's interesting. Um, I, I definitely agree with you. I think if you look at, as you said, the 12, the 13, the 14, they're the exact same chassis, right? Nothing has changed with those. And as you put before, you know, Apple was on a two-year design cycle, right? They'd have the you know, the four, they have the three, the three S, the four, the four S, the five, the five S. And so every two years you would have a brand new looking iPhone, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's a joke that people are buying a new iPhone because it looks new. But I mean, that's, it's a reality. Yeah. People like things that look new. That's why I don't know anytime there's a new car that comes out or a new, you know, car gaming console, whatever it is, if it's designed new, it's, it's, gets people interested, right? So now it seems like they're on a three-year design cadence. There's r- rumors that for next year, the iPhone, what, 15, it's, they're supposed to change how it looks on the outside at least. So I think that will get people re-interested in the phone. But from the 13 to the 14, the outside is the same and the inside is the same because it's the same A15 chip, right? I think, yeah. okay, maybe a little bit more RAM, one extra GPU core, but 
it's essentially the same phone. So people aren't interested. Now, when you look at the 14 plus, that's something that could get people more interested. But I think I think that's still not out yet. I think it's coming out early October. So I think that is something that definitely could increase sales numbers for just, you know, let's call them the non-pro iPhone 14s, but we're still waiting to see. Maybe people aren't as interested because they know that there's a bigger screen size available that they don't have to buy the pro price or pay the pro price for. And like you mentioned, you know, the island everyone joked around about, but that is legitimately something new for the pro devices. The 12, 13 pros, essentially the same phone, but the 14 pro, you have the island, you have a new processor again. So it gives people a reason to buy this new pro device. Yeah. Whereas, and even if you look at, you know, the, the user interface of it, right? This is a completely new user interface too. When we talk about how the island interacts with your apps, with your widgets, with that sort of thing. So software wise, that's doing something that no other iPhone is doing right now. So that's another reason why, hey, people are interested in this phone, are more interested in the pro device than the regular. Because typically the they run the same software, the pros and the regular devices. Yeah. Right. But now this is actually no, this is a software thing that only the pro device can do, which is why people are interested in it. And I think I think we'll see similar things from other companies, but I think iPhone because they're always in the news. We just happen to hear about this one first. Because if you look at phone designs, right, they've gotten pretty stale. They've gotten pretty stagnant. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Galaxy series, right, from the S21 to the S22, they're essentially the same phone. Mm -hmm. Just a slight refinement. Now, the Ultra, yeah, completely new phone because it's actually a Note, but slight refinements. When we look at the folds that they made, they just came out with, right, the Flip four and the fold four it's the same design just slight refinements oh we made the hinge a little smaller the battery's a bit bigger you know the the screen's a little bit bigger too but it's the same phone so i think as you said people are getting more savvy to the technology that they're buying and they're seeing that this phone doesn't look much newer from last year's model it doesn't really do anything new from last year's model so i think globally people won't be upgrading or buying new devices as much as they have in the past. And that's simply because they don't really have a reason to. Yeah. Nope. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I also think Samsung does something that's really smart where they build in what could potentially be the future of their phones in flagship devices that eventually trickle down to consumer devices. And I remember, and sometimes not even flagship devices, just because they make so many products, there could be something like, I remember back in the day, they made the Galaxy Mega. This was back when phones were like five inches, four inches large, and you know, no one really wanted a big phone. And then they released this phone called the Galaxy Mega, which was this gigantic phone, the first ever phablet, so to speak. And they realized, hey, people actually want a big phone. And then phones just started to get bigger and bigger because they did that research, they did that. And look at what happened with foldables, right? The original Galaxy Flip was a very expensive phone. Not great, but it was expensive. And then people thought, you know what, this is actually cool. And now you look at this new Flip, that's very similar to the last one, but 
what is the biggest thing that they did the last time they released that phone? They brought it down to a regular pr price of phone so that people who want something new and exciting can actually afford this new flip phone. And I don't really know the numbers on how much these segments are actually growing for Samsung right now, but at least they're doing something to get people excited about their phones. I think Apple needs to do something similar. They need to bring something fun and interesting into their phones. Um, or maybe they don't even need to, but it would be nice to see them do that. The one thing I will ask you, though, is based on this information, because Apple can do some really easy wins to get people excited about iPhones again. They could do things like put in USB-C, which I think would get a lot of people excited. They could uh, make a portless phone, which I think, despite the fact that it's taking away features, I think design-wise that could also get people excited as well if it's just this very clean um, design. But also maybe to drum up excitement of the non-pro models, do you think Apple will bring the pill-shaped notch to its non-pro devices maybe as early as the iPhone 15? I could see them doing USB-C. Mm -hmm. Also because the European Union has kind of mandated that they need to. Yeah. So I could see them doing USB-C. I really hope they don't do a portless iPhone. <laughs> but I think, I think they hold off the pill cutout for one more design refresh. Mm-hmm. I think the iPhone 15, I, I mean, I hope that they change the design of the base model, but I think they still have that separation of, okay, the pill cutout is a pro feature and the iPhone 15 looks different on the outside, but, you know, not the pill. And then for the 16, I could see them saying, we brought the revolutionary dynamic island down to our, <laughs> you know, regular devices, but still leave it 60 hertz and still no, you know, always True. on display. And, yeah. you know, I could still see them. Yeah. I, I honestly don't think they will ever move from 60 hertz on their non-pro devices, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I think, I think for the 15, no pill cutout for the 16 pill cutout, but, Mm, probably USB-C for the 15, if I had to guess. I would hope so. I'm actually excited for one of the few years to see what the next iPhone looks like because I wouldn't be surprised if we get something that's actually really interesting um, compared to this year, just out of necessity from Apple's point. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have not done anything interesting really for the base models. Yeah. On to topic number two, a development in the Twitter v. Elon Musk case. Now, there's been a few headlines of actually people outside of the case speaking up about the whole Twitter situation. A former Disney CEO said that back in 2016, Disney was considering buying the platform. They're actually very close. The board of directors had agreed to it, but they went back. They did some, you know, some digging, some researching, and they found that a substantial portion of Twitter users were bots or fake, which is why they pulled out of the deal, which is why Disney didn't end up buying Twitter. And that's back in 2016. Also recently, a whistleblower by the name of Peter Zatko, Peter Mudge Zatko, who is a former head of security for Twitter, uh, you know, he's a pretty big name in the cybersecurity industry. He has a long track record of forcing secrets out into the open. He's a hacker legend. He's worked for DARPA, for Google, for Stripe. He's a pretty well-known figure. And he's 
raised concerns. He's uh he's filed a complaint last couple months, he raised a complaint in August with the Security and Exchange Commission, with the Department of Justice, and with the FTC. And he's warned that half of Twitter's servers were running out-of-date, vulnerable software, and executives withheld dire facts about the number of breaches that the platform had and the lack of protection for user data. He said that thousands of employees have wide-ranging poorly tracked access to company software and for years has led to embarrassing hacks, including, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast, the commandeering of high profile accounts, including Elon Musk, former president Barack Obama and Donald Trump, which, you know, if you think back to the podcast we did about the whole Twitter hack and, you know, someone stealing Bitcoin, this was a result of that. Mm -hmm. Right. So he filed a complaint in August and he warned the, board that early in his tenure so right when he started working for twitter they could lose the ability to restart restart their servers due to overlapping outages in their data centers which actually could cause the service to be down for months or even possibly just for them to lose all of their data completely and this came close to happening in 2021 where people who worked for twitter were actually worried that this platform could be gone forever right because of just their poor infrastructure so this guy, whistleblower, came out and this recent, you know, the Disney CEO recently said that, hey, this is why we didn't buy them in 2016. And now Elon Musk is saying, see, I told you guys Twitter was fishy. Told you, you know, they weren't being honest to try and bolster his case for why he isn't, why he wants to back out of the deal. Now, none of this is really why he originally wanted to back out. I mean, the bots, you could say that's part of it, but... Recently, it came to light that Elon Musk hired his own private consultants to figure out how much of Twitter's users were spam or bot accounts. They actually said, hey, 5 to 11% are bot accounts, which is exactly what Twitter told Elon. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like his justification for there being too many bots because Twitter told him exactly how many they expect to be bots. It doesn't seem like his justification for backing out of the deal is going to work, but it's interesting to see that there are all these other underlying issues with Twitter. There have been these long, you know, long-standing underlying issues that are coming to light now. So I guess my question to you, what are your thoughts on the whole bot situation with Twitter that it's been a known problem for a while, but also, you know, these security flaws that it that have also seemed to be present for a while too. Do you think this is going to help Elon's case at all? Or do you think that this isn't relevant to him trying to back out of the deal? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, first of all, bots are a problem on every platform, YouTube, uh, Twitter, I would imagine, uh, uh, TikTok and, and Instagram, like bots are just an issue because it's so easy to make a bunch of bots. I even remember there was a point in YouTube's history where there would be a lot of bot subscriptions to channels just so they could bolster their subscription count. Um, so yeah, this has always been an issue. And if anyone's been in the comment sections on YouTube recently, they'll see, hey, bots are a problem there as well. So that's just the reality of being an internet company uh, in 2022. But then there's also you know, this comparison of the potential purchase by, uh, by Disney and 
this is the thing. All that research and and looking into purchasing the company was done by the company that was trying to purchase them behind closed doors in a professional manner. That's how you go about purchasing <laughs> a company, not making a bunch of tweets and then offering a bunch of money uh, before you do your d- due diligence. And then after that, that deal, first of all, also threatening the company to take the deal. And then when they finally do, then you evaluate your purchase and the back out. To me, that's just irresponsible uh, on Musk's part. And like you mentioned, he was able to hire an independent uh, investigation on the the amount of bots. And it kind of came in line with what Twitter was saying. But also, like, that's all stuff you do before you put in the offer. And once you put in the offer and you say, this is what I want, and you threaten the company to take your offer, I feel like that's the point where you realize you did your due diligence to buy this company. It, it can't be after the fact. Because... I mean, I think that sets a precedent to now anybody who decides, any billionaire who decides they want to buy out a company um, can then go back on that from any random idea that they come up with later on. It should be you have to do your due diligence before you put in that purchase. So I don't know. It's it's one of those things where, yeah, I can understand where maybe the this this bot issue is a little concerning. And also for the amount that he spent, maybe, you know, he's feeling a little bit of buyer's remorse. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, buyer's remorse is, is something that, that we can all kind of identify with. And not all of us have spent $44 billion on something. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's understandable from his point. But I don't think when you're dealing with this amount of money and you're dealing with this level of professionalism, that the way he went about it is, is the right way at all. Yeah. Uh, and then when it comes to the... The technical issues with Twitter, that's not surprising to me at all for a couple of reasons. One, Twitter has struggled to make money for years. And even though it has a huge user base, they are not uh, a Facebook. They're not a Google. They're not They're not the typical tech company that you would see that just has billions upon billions of dollars to spend on on everything. I mean, they should. And, and they should be focusing on their infrastructure 100%. This is not an excuse but the reality is Twitter is not uh, a cash-heavy company. Um, and I think that's starting to show in where they're cutting corners. Where they're cutting corners is absolutely unacceptable, but uh, honestly, it's not surprising. And I I hope the fact that this information is starting to get out there, if it's actually legit, forces them to push the money into uh, getting their infrastructure more secure and better because at the end of the day... There's a lot of people on Twitter. There's a lot of verified people on Twitter. And the information and the reach that, that these accounts have is is very sensitive. And it can't we can't have another situation like the the Bitcoin scam that happened a while ago uh, happen again. They need to make sure that those types of things don't happen because these are legitimate people that are communicating um, with the world out there. And it's very easy for someone to impersonate these people if they get access to it. So yeah, this is just one of those situations where I think Twitter grew too quickly and they started cutting corners and they need to fix that ASAP. Yeah. Um, so the trial hasn't officially started yet, you know, deciding whether or not Elon is going to have to pay up. That will start on October 17th in Wilmington, Delaware. And it's going to be a five-day trial. So it's going to be a very 
quick trial once it does start. But yeah, October 17th, we'll definitely report more at that time. On to topic number three, we've had foldable phones. Now we have foldable laptops. Now recently, Asus came out with their ZenBook 17 Fold. It's a foldable laptop, essentially, right? It's a giant tablet, 17 inches, that folds in half and has a keyboard that you attach to it. So it turns into a laptop. I think it's a 12.5-inch screen with the keyboard attached to it. Or you can remove the keyboard, fold it out to a 17.3-inch screen, 4 by 3 aspect ratio, 2.5K, huge screen, it's a new form factor that we've seen. They're not the first ones to do it. I think Lenovo th had a ThinkPad X1 that they came out with last year. There's also a 2022 update that they've also had. So it's an emerging, it's an emerging form factor. We haven't seen many companies do it yet so far, right? We haven't seen Samsung's version. We haven't seen anything from Apple. Probably won't ever see anything from Apple, but it's an interesting form factor nonetheless. So I guess my question to you, what have you seen of these foldable laptops or these, I mean, it's really a tablet, but what have you seen of these foldable devices? And do you think it's something that's going to stay? Do you think it's a market that's going to grow? Is it something that you're interested in having a, a giant tablet that can fold into a laptop? That's a multi-purpose device. Yeah, it's, I don't know if this is something that, that I'm interested in right now, but specifically talking about the Asus ZenBook Fold 17, um, which is the more recent product that was released from, from Asus. Every time I see a video of it, I'm amazed. It, it reminds me of something from like science fiction of like this big tablet that folds up uh, into like a book, but then can also be a laptop. Like it's just so cool conceptually, but it still has the same downsides of a foldable device, you know, the soft screen, the worry about durability going forward and the price. These are very premiumly priced products. Uh, but that being said, they still get me excited. I, I've said many times, I love the Microsoft Duo. And one of the products they originally unveiled with the Microsoft Duo was the Microsoft Neo, which was just a bigger version of the Duo that was very similar to this these folding ideas but was two separate screens and then you could just put a keyboard down and then on one of the screens and then you get like a touch bar at the top of the keyboard and then your mm. regular laptop screen and i love that i thought this is the coolest thing ever i just loved seeing what happens when you put the keyboard down and the screen just automatically adjusts it just looked so cool unfortunately that product was canceled and that was probably the right decision because even the microsoft duo didn't do very well but Every time I see something like this, it just, I think it's really cool. I love seeing when the keyboard gets put down on this laptop or on the tablet, it automatically turns into like a laptop form factor. Uh, yeah, it's just really, really cool. They definitely have ways to grow or room to grow. Uh, I would love to see, you know, s slimmer bezels maybe in the future or, you know, a, a more seamless kind of screen where you don't get the, the crease in the middle. That's still an issue we're having with foldables right now. And I'm glad that they're making these because it forces us to kind of try new things going forward. But yeah, I'm in the same boat on this product as I am with the Galaxy Fold, where it's like, yeah, this is so cool, but I can't imagine myself using one of these um, 
over like a traditional tablet or a laptop. But I don't know. Like, do you, if let's say, for example, these products right now were the same price as like an iPad Pro and this foldable. So you're not paying the foldable premium. Do you think this product is doing enough to convince people to say, okay, I don't need the best iPad with pen support and all this stuff. I'll use this soft screen foldable tablet. Or do you think we need to, we need to maybe drastically change the way we think about foldables because the downsides of the soft screen and, and, and the crease is just not, not doing it for people. I think at this moment, the foldable, yeah, at this moment, the foldable market isn't really competing with tablets mm. in my opinion. Because, like you said, the soft screen, this model in particular, the keyboard doesn't work the best all the time. There's pairing issues. It doesn't wirelessly charge when you connect it to the laptop. There's a separate cable for it. Yeah. It's internal internals aren't even suitable for things like video editing or graphical editing. So I think this particular model doesn't quite cut it yet. Even if it was the same price and, you know, you're not paying that foldable premium, I think for its internals and, and what it does, it's not there yet. I agree with you. It's it's remarkable that you can have a device. When you, it's a device that big, you know, a 17-inch tablet, essentially, that can then fold into a laptop. I think that's very cool and something from science fiction, but it's not the most usable yet. But this is still like first, second generation of foldables, right? It wasn't really until, if you look at Samsung and their their Z Folds and Z Flips, it wasn't really until the third edition that we said, oh, wow, this is actually like a viable device. And it's still not competing with the iPhones, with the regular candy bar phones. I think, you know, just the versatility of it, I think a foldable tablet, laptop, is it could be the future, mm -hmm. but we're just not there yet. If you had something like, I don't know if you had something with some sort of stylus or pen support to the level of the Samsung Galaxy tabs or the iPads and iPad Pros, I think then it would be, it would definitely be competing with those kind of tablets, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And because of the durability, like you said, because it doesn't have the internals to keep up with them. I don't, yeah, I definitely couldn't see myself going with one of those instead. And I don't think a lot of people are, but I don't know, maybe Samsung is working on the foldable tablet because they're, I mean, they're pretty much dominating the foldable phone market right now. I'm sure they could take a lot of their expert expertise, a lot of their experience there and just turn it into their tablet laptop division or yeah, yeah, turn it into their laptop tablet division. But Personally, at least the way things are right now, I prefer the form factor of something like the Asus Flow Z13, mm. where it's a tablet that you attach a keyboard to. So then it turns into a laptop. The 17.3 inch screen, that I mean, that's great that you can fold that up and put it in your bag. That's remarkable, but I don't need something i guess i don't need a screen that large to carry around on the road with me that's a good point yeah <laughs> right like 13 yeah that's great even like the 16 inch macbook pro i mean if someone was giving me the device for free yeah sure great i, I definitely take it but like that's pretty large carry around day to day and i guess especially if you're not doing like 
hardcore video graphical editing on it every day. So it's a cool form factor, not for me. I think it's not for most people. And we still, I think we're still a generation or two away from it. So in that case, then, do you think there is a future for foldables, either in the tablet, phone, or laptop space? Or do you think maybe maybe that's just not something that, that people want or need? Like, Do you think in the next two, three years that foldables could be the next big thing in, in mobile community, computing? Uh, I see, I mean, phones, yes. Mm-hmm. Tablets, laptops, no. Yeah. I, we'd have to have, we'd have to have like huge breakthroughs. I would say in the the tablet laptop space, but I mean, it could be, if they get to the same level of computing power as a laptop, as a dedicated desktop, then I think it could take over. Because mm-hmm. if you could, then just have one device where it's all right. This is my computer, and when I'm at home, I open it up to the 17 inch model and. It can do everything I need to do at home. And then, oh, I'm on the road. Let me just fold this down. Let me take it on the road with me. If we get to that point and it's as powerful, you know, it can't be completely as powerful as the desktop just because, you know, thermal management and whatnot. But let's say if you get it to as powerful as a laptop right now, to have one device that does everything, I think that is the future. Whether or not it's a foldable device, I don't know, because then you're kind of sacrificing, you're sacrificing something in order to make the device foldable. Yeah. I still think the Z13, where it's a tablet that is as powerful as a laptop. And when you're on the go, you can take this smaller screen that it's still just as powerful. When you're at home, you can plug it into your setup at home and it turns into a computer. It turns to, the, to you know, your at-home workstation. I think that is the ideal situation. And I don't think you gain anything really. I don't think you I don't think you gain enough from having it be a foldable screen to make this the future. I think having one device that powers everything, so you have the same amount of or you have yeah, you have the same amount of power whether you're at home plugged in or you're on the road or you know you're commuting on the bus or a train. I think that is the future, but I don't think you gain anything really from folding it, yeah, to to overtake that. Now, a phone uh, makes a bit more sense, but then again, people aren't really using phones for that sort of stuff, right? People aren't really doing hardcore computing from their phones. But I see more of a use case for a phone unfolding into a tablet, maybe for reading, maybe for viewing purposes, maybe for, you know, document sign-in. That is more useful to me. Yeah, that's more useful in my mind, a phone opening into a tablet than a tablet opening into, or I guess, yeah, I don't know, a laptop opening into a massive tablet. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it, honestly, I, I don't I don't disagree with you. It's just, for me personally, like as cool as foldables are, and we, we could even talk about rollables and all these, these new OLED tech that change takes a, small thing and makes it into a bigger thing. It's all really cool. But for me personally, and I might be the only one who thinks this, I think Microsoft's approach was the right approach. I like the idea of two independent screens, whatever size, whether it's phone sized or tablet sized, 
um, with the Duo or the Neo that fold like a book into a smaller device is just such a great idea. You get the rigidity of like and durability of a solid state screen, not one that's folding. You don't have a crease. And yeah, there's a little bit of a gap in the middle, but we've seen things, we've seen screens that have almost no bezels. Like that's not a hard thing to accomplish or, or to get rid of mm-hmm. going forward. So I don't know, to me, that just takes almost all of the advantages of a foldable tablet or laptop, but with none of the disadvantages of the crease in the middle, the soft screen, the durability issues. So yeah, I would hope that more companies explore that idea because personally, I would love a Microsoft Duo or Neo, the the bigger tablet sized version of the Duo that once runs full Windows. And the reason why I say that is to me, it wouldn't even need to be the most powerful device. That could replace my phone, my tablet, my laptop, all in one device, where if I need to get something done, I have a regular tablet size screen that I can just, you know, do something quickly if I want to scroll YouTube or something like that. If I need to type, I can put it in a laptop form factor and I could type up and get an email done. But if I need to do productivity, which we've seen with the Duo, having those two independent screens is so good for productivity. So it's like, I don't know, I, I just find it so, such a great idea. And I'm kind of sad that it didn't succeed. But yeah, I, I don't know if necessarily the foldables or rollables or, you know, this cool OLED tech that you can make all these different size screens is definitely is definitely the future. But I don't know, it could be what you were saying, like, maybe we just need a couple of generations for, for the concept to be proven. Yeah. All right. And our final topic of the podcast is... First impressions of the Steam Deck. We talked about on the podcast before, the Steam Deck was my product, number one product of last year. It was a, a product or, or a device that I was super excited about. And I, I theorized that I would probably never get it because of just uh, how difficult it was to get your hands on them. But a few months ago, uh, Valve announced that they were able to increase production and they were going to start to accelerate out uh, Steam Deck orders. Originally, uh, my, uh, I ordered it, uh, I think about eight months ago. Uh, and it was, they were originally telling me that I would get it sometime in 2023, but so a few days ago, uh, maybe about a week ago, I got an email saying, Hey, your steam deck is just about ready. Do you want to put it in your order? I did. And I finally got it. I've had it for a few days and it is quite the device. Uh, you know, we talked about a few topics ago about buyer's remorse and, Originally, when I got the device, I did have a bit of buyer's remorse. It is a very interesting device. Just to break it down, it's a a big handheld PC, pretty much, that runs a version of Linux called SteamOS that has direct access to the Steam store, and it plays games that were originally designed for Windows. So because of that, there needs to be some kind of translation, and there is. There's a, a software called Proton, which translates the DirectX kind of architecture that the games are built off on Windows to this Linux OS. And not all games work, but there are a lot that do. And for me, my original impression of this product when I first got it was, oh, this is a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I originally tried to get uh, my current games library working. I didn't buy anything new uh, on the Steam Deck yet. I was just trying to see what of my current games would work well 
on this device. And originally, a lot of the games that I had were not deck verified, and some of them were even unsupported. One of my favorite games, Resident Evil 3, uh, was completely unsupported, but I decided to install it anyways. And weirdly, that worked flawlessly. But then a game like Cyberpunk 2077, which was verified and supposed to work, I had a lot of issues with. So it was kind of like this weird situation where I was uh, playing around with things quite a bit. But I will say this. After my first impressions of it being a little bit uh, finicky and a little frustrating trying to get things to work, uh, I realized something. And that was, I was trying to, and I spoke about this on the podcast before, I was trying to use this device as a PC, doing everything that I would have done on my PC, including mods and, and all of that kind of stuff, and running into little issues here and there. But when I use the device as a handheld console, like I would a Switch, just going to the store picking something, installing it, and playing it, it worked surprisingly well. And it was kind of, it was kind of magical, honestly, of when this product works, it's like you have a much larger Switch that plays games much better than the Switch does. And I've spoken on this podcast many times in the past, the Switch is one of my favorite consoles ever made. So the fact that it could do that, I started to realize the magic of, of what the Steam Deck was and really kind of uh, became a fan of it the way I originally thought. But at the end of the day, it is a PC, and I do want to do a lot of the tinkering. And uh, so I will say this. I, I would like to re return to this product at a, in the podcast in the future and talk more about it as I use it more and more. Uh, but my first impressions. First of all, after the unboxing, and I'll actually just send you a picture here. You can let me know what you think. But... Um, my first impressions was this thing is gigantic, kind of comically large. And originally it was it was a little bit of a, of a negative. Like when I, when I was looking at it compared to the Switch, I was like, oh, this is really, really big. Maybe this is something to bring up in terms of people who are looking for, for a handheld device. Maybe it might be too big for some people. And I will say it's large, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say if you are someone with smaller hands, the Steam Deck can be a little bit difficult to use. But... The one thing I will say is despite its size and probably because of its size, it's all really comfortable to use. You have full size joysticks, you have full size triggers, you have actually have grips on the back that a lot of times when you're using a switch for a long period of time, your hands can cramp up a bit because there's not a lot to hold on to. But with this, that doesn't necessarily happen, um, especially if you're sitting down. If you're sitting down, it's very, very comfortable to use. Uh, my next impression was I heard a lot of negative information about the screen and how the screen wasn't very good. I don't know if they changed the screen since the first batch, but I personally think the screen looks looks pretty good. It's not the best screen. It's not OLED. Uh, it doesn't have the deepest blacks, but it does look pretty good. And I think the choices that they made with a 720p resolution is great because you can run games. Well, it's actually 800p, so a little bit more than 720p. But you can run games at... Uh, standard resolution and they look great um, because you don't have to worry about scaling the image uh, where if it was a 1080p screen you'd have to scale the image and it probably look a little weird because of interpolation and the third impression I'll give uh, is Windows there's Windows drivers and Windows actually works pretty well so what I've done on Windows is it's all running off of an SD card and uh, I have Fortnite installed because Fortnite will not run on the Steam OS, 
So I have it running on Windows, and it works great. Uh, I was actually really surprised. I'm running on some pretty good settings. It looks, it's kind of completely replaced my Switch in terms of doing daily missions in Fortnite. So there's like so much versatility to it and stuff like that. Now, I will say with Windows and specifically with Fortnite, there's a lot of tinkering. So I, I want to make that like really clear. The Steam Deck does require a lot of tinkering. It's not necessarily a plug and play for everything. If there's a mm-hmm. specific game that you like and, and you're interested in the Steam Deck, I would say look at the, and you don't want to do any tinkering whatsoever, I would say look at whether or not that game you like or the games that you want to play in the future support SteamOS natively. And if they do, I think you could get away with it. It'll be fine. But if it is a situation where the the game is unplayable or you know there's a question mark on whether or not it's playable, I think if you're looking for something that you can just pick up and play at any point in time, it can get a little bit frustrating because that's not what this device is. There does take a little bit of tinkering. So, you know, overall, I think it's a really, really cool device. I'm actually kind of happy with it, um, even though originally I was thinking about potentially returning it. I, I've kind of 180 on that. And it is a really, really cool device, but there's definitely a lot of places where it can improve. So, mm-hmm. um, like I said, I would like to, there's certain, certain things I would like to talk about in the future. One, I'm going to see if I can replace my uh, PC with it uh, by doing some editing. So maybe editing this podcast in the future on it, see if it exports any quicker than it does on my full-fledged desktop. That's one thing I'm really interested about. And the second is going to be uh, one of the Steam Deck's killer features, which is emulation. Uh, It's been known that you can do a lot of emulation all the way up to the Switch on the Steam Deck. And that's going to be the next big endeavor that I try with it to see if this can fully replace um, not just my Switch, but all my older consoles like Xbox 360 to just have my games on this one device. Um, and then the final thing I will say is battery life. There's been a lot of, uh, negative information about the battery life of like it not having the best battery life for most games. It's pretty in line with the switch, um, for me, but it can do more than the switch. So if you do want to play a triple a game, like God of war or something like that, um, the battery life is going to be worse than the switch because it's just doing more. So I think that's kind of the, the thing to take in. If you want to use it as like a Switch-like device where you're pick, playing more indie, uh, lower-spec kind of games, it'll last almost as long as the Switch. But if you want to do more, it's going to be a little bit worse. So I, I don't have much of a problem with battery life. It's just setting that expectation. But, um, you know, I sent you the picture of the size comparison between the Steam Deck and the Switch. Uh, and I'll, I'll put it in the video version of the podcast so people can see it. I'm curious, what do you think about the Steam Deck uh, in terms of its size and... I don't know, is it something that you think can potentially catch more people? Or, uh, I don't know, based on what I said, do you think that maybe there's just a bit too much tinkering for, for the average person? I still, I'll still wait till I see it in person. Mm, okay. You know, as you mentioned, it is a lot larger than the Switch. From yeah. the picture, I can see that. You know, from your impressions, I can see that. But the ergonomics seem better from what you say. Mm-hmm. So I'll wait till I see it in person in order to, you know, to judge that. My only, I guess my only hangups, one, the tinkering. But, you know, as we said, talked about foldable laptops. This is the first generation. Yeah. Right. So maybe the second generation of the Steam Deck or maybe even, you know, 
in this first generation still, as they push out more updates, there will be more games supported. There will be less tinkering needed. I'm not too worried about that. This is, you know, it's, it's still very early on in the in the whole life span of the Steam Deck. I guess my only my only hang up really is the Switch is a gaming console, but it's very much a family device. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? And even if you look at let we talk about the size for instance, right? If you look at kids playing a handheld console, the Switch is going to be a lot more manageable than the Steam Deck. Even if you're just, let's say, if you're playing Nintendo games because you're emulating on the Steam Deck. If you look at a little kid, like, they have the Switch Lite for a reason, mm-hmm. right? And even then, the Switch Lite would be, let's say, a difficult console to hold for maybe someone 10 and under, right? There is no chance of them playing with a Steam Deck. Yeah. Also, if you look at the fact that you know, let's say a game like Mario Kart, for instance, right? If you have a Steam Deck, that is a console for one person to play. If you look at a lot of the party games on the Switch, like Mario Party, like Mario Kart, like Super Smash Bros., it's, hey, we can have this console, we can take off the controllers on the side, and we can take off the Joy-Cons on the side, and we can have, you know, two, three, four people all playing with this mini controller in your hand. I'm sure there were probably talks in Nintendo as, hey, how big do we want to make this screen? And there were, you know, probably talks that if we make this screen bigger, we'll have to make the controllers bigger. And if we make the controllers bigger, then little kids won't be able to play on it as easily. And we want this, yes, to be a gaming console for adults, but we also want kids to be able to play this too so that you can have, you know, mom, dad, playing this this console on their own and then when they want to play with their kids or you know it's easy for the kids to play too mm-hmm. so the steam deck definitely isn't that it's not a family console so it isn't it won't ever replace the switch in that sense i think in terms of you know you have some friends over some family over we can all play off of this one console it's, these controllers are easily attachable, detachable. You could play, you know, on a desk somewhere because it has a kickstand built in and you can give someone a controller. It's not going to be the same thing in that sense. But for the more hardcore gamers, definitely, right? You can't play Cyberpunk on a Switch. Yeah. You, you can't, right? And there's, a, as you have mentioned, there's a lot of other games that you can't play on the Switch that you can play on the Steam Deck. Whether or not they require tinkering, it requires tinkering or not, it's just at some point you'll be able to play them. So for the more hardcore space, yeah, definitely I could see the Steam Deck becoming a thing and becoming more popular. But for in terms of just like everyday family gatherings, family gaming, it won't come close to the Switch. And I think Nintendo knows that. And I think Valve and the Steam Deck know that right they're in that sense they're marketed into two very different people yeah i like i like what the steam deck is and i like what it can do and i like what it will be able to do but i i see them as two very distinct devices simply for the fact or yeah two very distinct devices simply for the fact that nintendo is more for family stuff let's say and the steam deck is more for 
you know, hardcore gaming, someone who's playing games by themselves. And in that sense, I could see it possibly competing maybe with something like a PlayStation or maybe with something like an Xbox, right? If you look at, as you mentioned, you know, having your entire gaming library on this device, if you look at something like xCloud, mm-hmm. right? You could get an xCloud subscription on your Steam Deck or a Game Pass Ultimate subscription on your Steam Deck, and you could have every single Xbox game imaginable on this handheld device. Yeah, that could also be a, a stationary device, right? That you could also dock at home, and in that sense, that's you know that's a big deal. That's something not dangerous for Xbox because they're still making money on the subscription, but possibly dangerous for Xbox console sales, right? If if personally, if I had the option to let's say get a Steam Deck or an Xbox Series S, I would definitely go with the Steam Deck mm. because I could play all the games that a Series S can. I feel like, uh, I mean, I can't really say right now, but I feel like performance-wise it would be similar to a Series S, but it's portable. Yeah. I mean, I I would ask you what you would choose, but you obviously chose the Steam Deck. Well, um, that's, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, that's a very real thing that I was thinking of when the steam deck was going to be sometime in 2023 or something like that. And I was truly under the impression that I would never get it. Um, I looked, think thought about maybe I should just cancel it and get an Xbox. And I think that's a, that's a valid kind of comparison because even though the steam deck is portable, as you've seen from the screenshot, it's big and it's not necessarily something that you want to carry around with you all the time. Not to mention battery life. If you're playing a big game is somewhere between an hour and a half to two hours. So you're not even going to be able to use it for very long away from a wall. So yeah, it's 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 definitely more of a niche device than I originally would have thought. And I, I really like the point that you brought up of the Switch and the Steam Deck working in two different verticals because originally, and this is why hands-on impressions are so important. Originally when I saw the Steam Deck and heard all the reviews and stuff like that, and there's so much positive Uh, reviews on the Steam Deck, and I completely agree with them. There's a lot of reason to be positive about this device. But originally when I saw it, I thought, the Switch is in trouble. Because the Switch, the next version of the Switch, is not going to be as powerful as the Steam Deck, most likely. And it's just, the Steam Deck seems like it's better in every way, including price. Because right now, the Steam Deck is very close to price of the Switch OLED model. And I imagine that the new Switch is either going to be that much or more. Um... But after using it, what you're saying is 100% right. The Switch is a completely different type of of device. And even though I have not used it at all since I've gotten the Steam Deck because I'd rather play games on the Steam Deck, anytime I pick up the Switch and I feel just how small and slim it is to use, to me, that's not a negative of, you know, it doesn't have the big grips on the back. To me, it's a positive because it's just so easy to grab and go. Uh, and I think that's that's a huge benefit for it and why I think it'll be it'll sell better than than a Steam Deck ever could um, the Switch and the next version of the Switch, despite the fact that it might have worse graphics or worse capabilities. But I don't know. That's probably enough rambling for me. I, I guess. Finally, do you have any questions about the Steam Deck um, either now or sometime in the future? You can bring them up. Let me know. But uh, yeah, is there anything about the Steam Deck that you in particular would want to know? Uh, one question I have right now. Mm-hmm. So you've done a 180, you were thinking of canceling it, you've gotten it, and you're very impressed with it. Mm-hmm. Or you're very pleased with it right now. 
will you invest in the dock for it also? Will you start to, I guess, build out the ecosystem for the Steam Deck? And for anyone, I guess, who doesn't know about the dock, do you want to explain what the dock is and what your thoughts are on it? Yeah, so this is actually one very good question because I can actually already speak to this. And two, um, I think this is a huge aspect of of the Steam Deck that's that's really cool. So I do have a dock and uh, I will hopefully do uh, a review of it as I use it more maybe in the future. Um, I have the JSO dock, which there's been a lot of people who have had their hands on it on YouTube. There's a lot of reviews on it and a lot of people are talking about how great of a dock it is. I haven't used the dock a ton because I mostly use the Steam Deck in, in handheld mode and I actually really like it in handheld mode. Same thing with the Switch. I almost never use the Switch docked, but the dock works great. The Steam Deck is a standard, uses a standard USB-C slot. Um, so, you know, the dock will give you standard USB-A ports. It will charge the device uh, and it has HDMI out and Ethernet. So very similar to the Switch dock and it works fantastic. It can do 4K60, which I've tested and it works great. Um, and uh, you can hook up your mouse and keyboard and it essentially just becomes a full-fledged PC. The one downside of the dock is that because the Steam Deck is portable hardware, it will not play games in 4K. So generally, if you're docking the Steam Deck to a TV or something like that, the games are not going to look very good because the device is designed to play games at 720p. Um, so that's a little bit of a downside. I think a lot of people have also seen this with the Switch. If you try to dock the Switch to a 4K screen, it can look games can look really, really bad. Uh, and Steam Deck is no different. Uh, and the only other uh, downside to the dock is, unlike the Switch, the USB-C port on the Steam Deck is at the top. So instead of just plopping it down and having everything dock automatically, you need to put it down in the dock and then attach the, the cable to the top, which just adds an extra step. And it's just not as sleek. So hopefully that's something that they can they can do in the future. All right. I guess that's it for now. We'll hear more about the Steam Deck later. Take it easy, everyone in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode.